Palestine. I've recorded this first chapter of a book, A World to Win, by the international socialist Tony Cliff, about growing up in Palestine, where he later worked with little success as a full-time revolutionary before his migration to England in the 1940s. This memoir makes for compelling reading for those interested in Zionism. Cliff broke with the Zionists because the specific spur that pushed me to become a socialist was the wretched conditions of Arab kids that I witnessed. A World to Win by Tony Cliff Chapter 1 Palestine My Childhood I was born in Palestine on the 20th of May 1917 at the end of the Ottoman occupation of Palestine and the beginning of the British takeover that lasted for 31 years. At the time of my birth, some 95% of the country's people were Arabs, and they continued to be overwhelmingly the majority for many years to come. In 1945, Arabs made up 68% of the population. I was born to a middle-class family. My parents, uncles and aunts were dedicated Zionists. My father and mother came to Palestine from the Russian part of Poland in 1902. One of my uncles came as early as 1888. The political background of my parents was very right-wing. I remember seeing a photo of Tsar Nicholas II meeting a delegation of the Jewish community in Russia led by banker Gluckstein, blessing the Tsar to overcome his enemies. Banker Gluckstein was my father's elder brother. Thank heaven I do not believe in predestination and I do not believe there is a gene for right-wing ideas. My father was a contractor who built sections of the Hejaz Railway. His building partner was Chaim Weissman, the first president of Israel. Friends of my family were among the leading Zionists. Moshe Sharet, later the foreign minister, a frequent visitor to our home. And he was a kind of political teacher to me. When I stayed with my uncle Kalvariski in Rehavia, Ben-Gurion would sometimes come to ask him for something, or to Paula, his wife, to ask for a folding bed. Dr. Hillel Yoffe, a leading Zionist, was another uncle of mine. My family was implanted at the core of the Zionist community. This probably made it more difficult for me to break from Zionism. The fact that my parents, as well as my uncles and aunts, came from Tsarist Russia, where anti-Semitism was rampant, of course slowed my move away from Zionism. My family, like all families from Europe, in later years suffered the horrors of the Holocaust. I met only a few family members who were exterminated by Hitler, although I heard of many others. One was an aunt who came to visit us in Palestine from dancing later called Gdansk, in the mid-1930s. Then there was a daughter of my uncle, Kalfarisiki, whom I knew very well. She was the same age as my older brother. She married a Dutch Jew with whom she had a child aged five when we met. All three of them were victims of the Holocaust. Chinese family, Chinese family that's my partner, suffered no less, but as she lived in South Africa, she had no opportunity to meet them. As a matter of fact, there is probably not one Jewish family in Europe or the United States which did not have many of its members fall victim to the Holocaust. 
Oriental, Sephardic and Yemenite Jews were largely not trapped in this way. It took me a few years to make the transition from being an Orthodox Zionist to being a semi-Zionist with a pro-Palestinian position and then to making a complete break with Zionism. My parents were very hurt when it was recorded in the local paper that my elder brother and I were arrested for distributing anti-Zionist leaflets in 1937. My mother was in tears, but I heard my father reassuring her, he will grow out of it. It was especially painful to them, as I was the baby of the family, and also had been sickly for many years, so that great attention had been paid to me. I only managed to stand at the age of two, and at the age of five I was taken to Vienna to see a rheumatism specialist. After this, my health improved a lot. Different circumstances and events trigger socialist ideas in individuals. A specific issue of oppression can lead an individual to become a a critic of existing society. Nobody becomes a socialist because he or she read Marx. The reading of Marx is the result of looking for an explanation of the injustices of society. Similarly, the utopian socialism of Charles Fourier and Robert Owen the criticism of class exploitation and oppression and the aspiration for a classless society preceded the scientific socialism of Marx and Engels. Every individual goes through a small, a similar experience by becoming first a critic of society and then looking for ways to change it. The specific spur that pushed me to becoming a socialist was the wretched conditions of Arab kids that I witnessed. While I was always shod, I saw Arab kids running barefoot all the time. Another issue was that there were no Arab kids in my class at school. It seemed unnatural to me that it should be like that. After all, my own kids, born and educated in England, never came home to tell us there were no English kids in the school, though I would not have been surprised if they had said there were no Dutch, Danish or French kids. After all, we live in England. At the age of 13 or 14, I wrote a school essay, as all the kids were asked to do. But the subject of my essay was, It is so sad that there are no Arab kids in the school. The teacher's comment was short and clear. She wrote, Communist. I have never dreamt of considering myself a communist until then. For the rest of my life, I have felt very grateful to this teacher, I wish I could hug and kiss her. There was another factor which focused my attention on the issue of the exclusion of Arab kids from the school. There was one small school in the country where Arab and Jewish kids were together. This school came from into being and was financed by an uncle of mine, Chaim Margalit Kalvariski. He was very well off, being the head of Rothschild's organisation in Palestine. He also founded a minuscule group of liberal Jews and Arabs called Brit Shalom, Peace League. This uncle was the butt of my father and mother's derision, as they thought he was mad. He was so single-mindedly, he was so single-minded, that he hardly talked about anything else except peace with the Arabs. When he met Chaney for the first time, 
He did not ask her about anything but barred straight into the subject of peace with the Arabs. Cheney thought there was a great similarity between him and me, both a bit deranged. She said to me, there must be a blood relationship explaining it. I told her Kalvarishki was not related by blood, but through marriage. He married my father's sister. His actions probably concentrated my attention on the issue of the exclusion of Arabs from my school even more. I identified myself with the underdogs. The exclusion of Arabs was not confined to education. They were also excluded from Jewish-owned houses. This segregation meant that throughout the 29 years I lived in Palestine, I never lived in a house with Arabs. As a matter of fact, for the first time I lived with a Palestinian Arab in the same house was in 1947 when I, small, uh, when I stayed in a small boarding house in Dublin. Another factor that spurred me to identify with the Palestinians was the name my parents gave me, Yagil Glackstein. This was taken from a John Wayne-type Zionist hero who murdered a number of Arabs. At the age of 13, I changed my name from Yagel to Yagal. Seeing that in Hebrew there were no vowels, but only consonants, the two names are spelt in exactly the same way, but so it was easy to do. The root of the name is Y-G-A-L, and this is Moses sent 12 spies from the 12 tribes of Israel to go to Canaan to spy out the land. Two said they would like to settle there, 10 said they would not. The first of those who did not want to settle was called Yagal. Closed Zionist Economy The Zionists who emigrated to Palestine at the end of the 19th century wanted its whole population to be Jewish. In South Africa, by contrast, the whites were capitalists and their hangers-on, while the blacks were the workers. In Palestine, the very low standard of living of Arabs compared to Europeans and with the widespread open and hidden unemployment, the means of excluding the Arabs was by closing the Jewish labour market to them. There were a number of methods used to achieve this. First, the Jewish National Fund, owner of a big proportion of the land owned by Jews, included a large chunk of Tel Aviv, and it had a statute that, in, a statute that insisted only Jews could be employed on this land. I remember in 1945, a cafe in Tel Aviv was attacked and almost entirely broken up because of a rumour that there was an Arab working in the kitchen washing the dishes. I also remember when I was in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem between 1936 and 39, repeated demonstrations against the Vice-Chancellor of the University, Dr. Magnus. He was a rich American Jew and a liberal and his crime was that he was the tenant of an Arab landlord. Probably no student of, let us say, the London School of Economics knows or cares whether the Vice-Chancellor owns his own house or rents it from a Catholic, Protestant or Jewish landlord. In March 1932, David Ben-Gurion, the leader of Mapai, the, the party of the workers of Eretz Israel, and a future Prime Minister of Israel made it clear 
that he was vehemently against the employment of Arab workers by Jews. He said, nobody must think that we have become reconciled to the existence of non-Jewish labour in the villages. We will not forego, I say, we will not forego one place of work in the country. I say to you with full responsibility that it is less shameful to establish a brothel than to evict the Jews from their work on the land of Palestine. Do not think that these were mere idle words. Tel Aviv's numerous brothels could hold their own with the best of them, but there was not a single Arab worker in the town. In this attitude, there was no great real distinction between right or left Zionists. The left Zionist socialists of Hashima Hatzair did not lag behind and there was no doubt that Bentoff, one of their leaders, was right in saying Mapai hasn't the monopoly over the demand for Jewish labour. We are for maximal expansion of Jewish labour and for its control in the Jewish economy. Indeed, in all the many instances of picketing against Arab labour, there is not a single instance where Hashemur Hatzir did not participate in or at least support the pickets. The Zionist Trade Union Federation, Histradut, the General Federation of Hebrew Labour, imposed on all its members two levies, one for the defence of Hebrew labour and one for the defence of Hebrew product. The Histadrot organised pickets against orchard owners who employed Arab workers, forcing the owners to sack them. I remember the following incident. It was when Cheney was quite new to the country and she joined me to live just next to the Jewish market in Tel Aviv. One day she saw a young Jewish man walking among the women selling vegetables and eggs and from time to time he smashed the eggs with his boot or poured paraffin on the vegetables. She asked, what is he doing? I explained that he was checking whether the women were Jewish or Arab. If the former, it was all right. If the latter, he used force. Cheney reacted, that's just like South Africa, from where she had just come. I replied, it's worse. In South Africa, the blacks are at least employed. Cheney arrived in Palestine in June 1945, and we started to living together in October the same year. We were desperately poor, and our only income was from the pittance earned by Cheney as a part-time English teacher. We rented a room in a huge squalid suburb on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, built on sand dunes with no roads or amenities, something never mentioned in Zionist propaganda. The landlord was a Yemenite from a community known as Black Jews. His wife, aged 25, already already had a number of children and had lost her teeth and was as thin as a rake. On our request for a room to rent, the landlord pointed to an empty sand dune. Where's the room, we asked. It'll be there tomorrow, he said, and amazingly it was. A tiny room with walls of single brick thickness and floor tiles laid out directly on the sand. When it rained, the water flowed underneath the tiles, creating a damp fog which turned our shoes, books and everything else in the room green. Our books were further devoured by mice. Our kitchen was a primer stove, 
our lighting and an Aladdin lamp. The toilet was a communal flush toilet considered superior to the traditional floor toilet which was, was on another dune and did not flush. Our bed was a two and a half foot metal structure donated by the Zionist authorities to all immigrants that sagged down the middle. It regularly became infested with lice and every week we conducted a a louse burning ceremony with our primus stove to welcome the Sabbath. A friend visiting us once leaned out the window and the whole frame came out. The same friend worked in a restaurant and sometimes brought us wiener schnitzels that were beginning to rot and could not be used for customers. For us, this was a real treat, which we added to our potato, spaghetti and orange diet. Once a month, we treated ourselves to a restaurant meal of camel meat, the cheapest type on the menu. In this room, I worked on my 400-page book on the Middle East, which Cheney translated into English and then typed on an old, almost broken typewriter. She did this no less than eight times over. It reached before it reached its final form. Cheney's parents decided to move to Israel from South Africa, and we could not possibly let them see our conditions. So we succeeded at great expense for our limited means in finding a room consisting of half a boiler room in a tall block of flats. It was six feet wide, enough to accommodate a bed and a wardrobe, which we were donated. At the foot of the bed was a small table with a side that dropped down to enable the door to open and close. We considered this room luxurious compared to our previous one. However, Chaney's father nearly fainted when he saw it and remarked, but my garage is three times the size. So let's go out with that famous song by Farouz. We will return.
صغار شجيع الغنى وناس الحنين مكان 